0: This is Science Drives and Wellness Steers, season two. I'm your host, Allie. When I was in school, the most unhelpful and frequent thing I was told was she'd do so great if she just focused. The thing I never heard was how to focus. So I've dedicated my career to helping parents and educators do better. Moving from just pay attention to let me teach you how to pay attention. Let me teach you how to harness the superpowers of your brain. I've been the clinical director and therapist for Magnificent Minds for over a decade and have been supporting teachers, parents, and therapists of neurodivergent kiddos for even longer. Professionally, I'm admittedly an eclectic mix with formal training in counseling psychology and behavioral sciences. I don't fit neatly into a box, which I guess is something I have in common with the spectacularly unique kiddos I support. I combine my love of science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and find myself at the midpoint of behavioral science and mental health, looking through the lens of neurodiversity. I'm a hippie at heart, avoiding pseudoscience, gluten, and ableism. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who is not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm a sometimes-all-over-the-place, not-always-put-together mom-of-three, entrepreneur, and a wife who was voted most likely to speak out of turn in just about every year of elementary school, which surprises no one who knows me. You can look up my business at MagnificentMinds.ca or do a full social media stalking on Instagram at MagMinds, on TikTok at TherapyMagMinds, on my blog, of course, in my podcast, or even sign up to receive monthly updates via my newsletter. But don't worry, spam isn't my jam. Thanks for taking a bit of time and joining my community. I look forward to going on this journey with you. Hello, welcome back to another episode. You may or may not know that I actually have a store on TPT, on Teachers Pay Teachers, where you can access some of my resources. I have some that are free, some that are paid. One of my most accessed Resources is the 10 essential habits for being a special education teacher or therapist who gets it. This is a document I prepared for my own team for training. And what I've done is I have pivoted this a little bit and I am going to deliver this information tailored to parents. So this is going to be my 10 essential habits for the parent of a neurodivergent kiddo. What is neurodivergent? Autism, ADHD, anxiety, ODD, any kind of kiddo that is just a little bit different than what you would consider neurotypical. And I hate that word. But I think for the point of illustrating just who this is for, I think it is relevant to note. So, the 10 essential habits. So, these are habits or strategies, practices. Some of them are just mindset shifts that I have come to sort of. Um they've they become really the the core values through which I consult and support the parents that I support. It is you know, these are the core values through which I support my team, which, as you know, is multidisciplinary, so often involves a lot of collaboration across disciplines, and also, if I'm being honest, also involves a lot of trying to mediate the different goals of different professionals from different disciplines and coming together in a way that addresses everyone's goals with, you know, skill development while also ensuring that we're aligned on values. And, you know, if you know, you know, there can be some disagreement between the different multidisciplinary disciplines, I guess, for lack of a better word, when it comes to what the most important things are. So I feel that when I am able to lead with these 10 essential habits, of course, in my professional life, these are the habits of a therapist, uh, I, I feel that I'm able to better support the process of goal setting and goal attainment. So because of that, I think these 10 essential habits are going to be Helpful and beneficial for you as a parent of a kiddo with additional needs, whatever that looks like, and it will help you number one understand your kiddo, number two, advocate for your kiddo, and number three, understand your own values and really sort of move towards your values in you know, insofar as your behavior and your actions. So Let's get to it. I'm going to do them in reverse order from 10 to 1. Again, these are the 10 essential habits. And these are going to be the 10 essential habits of a parent, of a kiddo with special needs. What does that mean? I've operationalized it, which really just means I've defined it as respect for neurodiversity and science, understanding consent, and valuing mental health. So if you are a parent of a child with special needs, a neurodivergent kiddo, and you respect neurodiversity, science, and understand consent and value mental health and wellness, these are 10 Guiding principles or thoughts that you can use and really just sort of fall back on if you're trying to decide how best to navigate a variety of situations and how best to support and advocate for your kiddo. So let's get into it. Number 10 avoid the sentence use your words when your kiddo is visibly dysregulated. So a lot of the time, we as parents are prompting our kids to communicate better. And that's fantastic. It's a great goal. Um, You know, neurodivergent kids, neurotypical kids, frankly, some adults all need to learn to communicate as best as they can, you know, well. And what is well? Well, however, they need to to self-advocate. That's the purpose of communication, right? To get your needs met. So, as parents, we you know we we parrot what we hear, and we hear, parent uh, teachers, therapists, you know, well-intentioned individuals tell our kiddos to use their words when they're dysregulated. The problem is, when your kiddo is dysregulated, much like when you're dysregulated, you can't access the part of your brain required to think logically a lot of the time. Okay, and as adults, we get a little better at it, but we're still not perfect. And for kids. It's, you know, really difficult. So when your kiddo's dysregulated, that might look like a temper tantrum. It might look like huffing and puffing, stomping off. It might look like swiping. It could look like aggression. It could just look like visible signs of dysregulation, flushed cheeks, that kind of thing. When we respond to that dysregulation with an expectation that the child almost certainly can't meet, you know, use your words, we're really setting them up to fail and, and we're really setting them up for further dysregulation. So what do you do instead? Well, definitely tell your kiddo when they're regulated to use their words. That's perfect. I have no issue with that. But when they're dysregulated, avoid that verbiage, avoid that sentence. Don't say use your words. Instead, it's three steps, okay? The first is acknowledge. I want you to acknowledge how they're feeling and label it so that they start to associate the feeling with that the label. Okay, so you might say, you're mad. That's step one. You acknowledge, you're mad. Step two is empathize. So you might say, I can understand that. And you know, you might take it a step farther and you might say, I can understand that you are so frustrated that it's raining and that we can't go to the park. Okay, that's step two. Step three is going to be redirect and reiterate the expectation. So a lot of the time, Our kiddos become dysregulated when they can't access something they want, when they're told to wait, when, you know, something's not available that they want, or when something doesn't go their way, you know, they make a mistake or whatever it is. Um, So when we follow this formula, you know, step one, acknowledge, say, you're mad. Step two, empathize. And I can understand that because, you know, this is, this is extremely frustrating. We were about to go to the park, And then it started raining. Number three, redirect. And this is really important because you've acknowledged and empathized. So you're saying, I see you and I hear you, but you don't want your kiddo to linger in that state after they've been seen and heard. You want to help them cope, help them rebound. So you want to redirect. So you're mad and I can understand that because we were all ready to go to the park and now we can't. However, what we can do is an art activity, and as soon as it clears up, we can go to the park. So you're redirecting them to something else that they can do instead, ideally something that's just as good, but it's not always possible. And you're also reiterating the expectation. So you're saying, you know, um, what we can do now is, you know, this art activity. And as soon as it clears up, that's when we can go to the park or whatever it is. And this is going to be especially important if your kiddo is responding to a boundary. So, you know, you they want the iPad and you say, listen, your tech time is done for the day. And they have a really sort of moment of dysregulation and you acknowledge and label and you say, you're mad. And then you empathize and you say, I can completely understand that you're mad. It's so frustrating when you want the iPad and it's not available. Then you're going to redirect. But what you can have right now is whatever it is, books, toys, blocks, time with me. And then you're going to reiterate, you can have the iPad at this next moment or once you've done X, Y, Z, whatever the expectation is. All right, number nine, avoid whole body listening as a strategy. So whole body listening is a tactic that we talk about in schools a lot and it's really just a way of sort of unpacking our expectations when it comes to how our kids listen because listening is really not just about turning your ears on. um, It's also about, you know, how you show up to show the speaker that you're listening. And the idea that, you know, it's about how you show up is is not the issue. Um, That's cool. That's something that kids have to learn, that my body, you know, my body can show that I'm listening. Um, That's not the issue. The issue is that when we rely on this concept of of whole body listening, which is actually a very specific definition of listening, where, you know, hands and feet are quiet, mouth is quiet, body is still, those kinds of things, we're telling our kiddos that if they need movement, if they need... um, You know, if they need to avert their gaze, if they need to tap in order to listen, that that's not okay and and that's not a good message to be sending. So instead, if your kiddo isn't listening, instead of using that whole body language where you're saying, you know, that you need to be still and focus and give me your eyes, um, I want you to give them other ways that they can show that they're listening that match what they need. If your kiddo needs to move their body to listen, then don't ask them to be still to show you that they're listening. Let them know that there are other ways they can show that they're listening. For example, looking towards you or turning off the iPad or other ways that are going to signal to the speaker that they're listening. Number eight, avoid forced eye contact. A lot of parenting experts really just hammer in the idea that eye contact is vital and it's the only way to connect. And while that may be true for some kids, there are kids that don't like Eye contact. There are adults that don't like eye contact, that direct, you know, eye to eye gaze. Instead of forcing eye contact, if you get eye contact, reinforce it. It's it's great. You know, it's connection. It's it's joint attention, um, which is fantastic. But instead of requiring it. Um, you can teach your child different ways, again, to show with their body that they are listening. And, and it really kind of goes along with the idea of, of avoiding whole body listening and teaching them how to, you know, have their body show up in a way that says, I'm attending to you. Um, you know, there are different ways that you can do that. You can orient your body towards the speaker. You can look at the speaker um you know, from the chest up, you can, whatever. It, essentially, you're teaching your kiddo that they can show you that they are looking towards you without looking at your eyes. Um, and, and as soon as we stop saying, you know, find my eyes, look at my eyes, why aren't you looking at me? And we take a lot of stress out of the social interaction for our kiddos. And as long as our kids are demonstrating other forms of behavior that show us that they're engaged in conversation with us, that's really all we need. And and from a, you know, socially acceptable standpoint, that's all anyone really needs is just to know that, you know, we're engaging in joint attention, that we're both here in this moment together. All right, number seven, here we go. Commit to using positive opposites. What are positive opposites? Well, positive opposites are when we tell our kids what they can do instead of what they can't do. So instead of don't hit your sister, it's, you know, you can give your sister a high five. Or, you know, you can use your words to let her know that you are, you know, whatever. Um, that you're mad, that you're sad, that you're frustrated. Um, when you tell them what to do instead of what not to do, you flip the script a little and you give them a little bit less opportunity to be non-compliant or to be non, um, you know, non-engaged with you in that moment and defiant. All right, number six. Number six. Do teach coping mechanisms and self-regulation skills before they are needed. Okay, that's the key. Of course, teach deep breathing. Of course, teach, you know, physical activity and yoga and motor movements and, um, you know, positive affirmations and all of that good stuff that is, you know, mental health focused. But do it proactively, not reactively. Don't wait until your kiddo begins to show signs of dysregulation to ask them to take a deep breath. Don't ask them to do yoga when they're starting to climb their escalation continuum. Do it proactively. Teach all of these coping skills when they're completely regulated so that there is a greater chance that they will use them on their own as they're climbing their escalation continuum. If you have a teacher that is really fond of that age-old schoolhouse strategy of taking away recess as a form of punishment. I would encourage you to, you know, view this all in the same way where we, we need to be teaching our kids coping mechanisms before they act out and before they become dysregulated and not taking away possible coping mechanisms contingent on, you know, challenging behavior. So if you can Illustrate or you know reframe that old-school approach to your teacher and say you know that recess is actually really regulatory for my kid and it's really counterproductive when you take away the recess contingent on bad behavior and while I Understand you know you like the idea of a consequence Perhaps there's an alternate way or perhaps we can start targeting coping mechanisms and self-reg strategies Before we need them and not after all right number five do respect diverse interests in areas of expertise, for sure. Respect it, champion it. If your kid loves um, ancient, I don't know, ruins, go for it. Let them read novels about, that, about it, you know? Let them do their room like the Amazon if that's what they're interested in. Um, lean into those interests. If it's Thomas the Train and you're not sure it's age-appropriate, don't stress about that. That is not a big-picture problem. Okay, forego the idea of age appropriate when it comes to special interests. Some of you know the most successful. People in the world have pursued very niche interests that may or may not have been age appropriate at the time that they were, you know, conceived as interests. Um, You know, there are cartoonists who for a living draw, you know, cartoon, uh, draw cartoon characters and, you know, animate. There is a place for everyone and every interest in this world and even professionally this can turn into areas of interest, expertise, and career. So don't Don't stress on that and do respect those areas of interest. Number four, do prompt and teach communication. Absolutely. But be mindful that the way you're teaching communication, the instructions you're using need to be instructions that are sort of real world application. So avoid, you know, the tendency to have your kiddo repeat what you say by saying, oh, it's not cookie it's cake. Say cake. Or, you know, if you're prompting an articulation issue, oh, it's not tat. Say cat. Because none of that is going to translate to real world um, forms of communication and real world learning. So be mindful of that when you are teaching and prompting communication, you are doing it naturally. If your child, you know, calls something by the wrong name, instead of saying, oh, repeat after me, or copy me, or... Birth me, then you just label the item in its correct form. Oh, that's coffee cake. You meant coffee cake. Cool. Yeah, you can have coffee cake. Um, You know, if your child says, you know, something with an articulation error or puts an S on the end of something that doesn't need it. Um, I want fruits. Oh, you want fruit? Okay, cool. Here's the fruit. Um, So yes, of course, prompt language and teach language, but be mindful that you are doing it in a way that translates to the real world and is not robotic. Avoid that tendency to say things like, first me, then you, or copy me, because those things don't really happen in the real world. Um, All right, number three, do use physical prompting when you need to to guide and support skill development. It can be very helpful to physically guide someone on how to complete something, Um, but think about it like this. Would you like the level of physical prompting that you're doing? And if the answer is no, think about that critically. Um, Putting your hands on someone else, hand over hand prompting is what it's called, has a place. And as long as the kiddo is willing and, you know, eager and interested in what you're teaching them, it can be perfectly valid as a way to teach skills. But remember that when we are, you know, using hand over hand or physical guidance to teach, it needs to be something that we view as intrusive. And the second that we start to see a, you know, a lack of cooperation or a bit of non-compliance, we need to see that as non-consent and we need to retract and we need to say, okay, it's another way I can teach this that isn't going to be potentially, you know, aversive and difficult for my kiddo. The other thing with physical prompting is that you never want to do physical any kind of physical prompting during a moment of escalation and really the only exception to that is if the child is in imminent risk. I mean we're never going to be, you know, following through on a skill-based demand or instruction or task if the kiddo is dysregulated. If they're dysregulated, if, you know, they're escalated, it's no longer a teaching moment. So work with them through those emotions and then go back to the skill once they're regulated. Don't try to push through and prompt through to exert your, you know, instructional control or your, you know, follow through on the demand. At that point, the moment is gone. Revisit that expectation and, and really look at how you're teaching to see if that may have had some, you know, contributing factor to their overall escalation and, and how it happened number two we're almost there do know the difference between can't and won't what does that mean understand how instructional modality or the way we're teaching can affect whether they will or won't engage in a particular skill and also think about motivation because sometimes our kiddos don't perform a skill because they can't they don't have all of the skills required in the chain to get to the end goal so They may not tie their shoes because... They don't know how to do every single step involved in tying their shoes. Washing their hands is another great example. They may not be able to wash their hands when you ask because there are certain steps, maybe let's say three out of five steps they can do, two out of five they can't do. So think about whether every step in the chain is something that they can do independently before you're asking them to do it. If you know they can and they're still not doing it, then you're not looking at a situation where they can't, you're looking at a situation where they won't. And if they won't, then you're looking at a motivation issue. Why aren't they motivated to do this skill? How can I support them in, you know, capitalizing on motivation? How can I structure the environment in a way that this is more motivating for them, that there's more payout for them? They won't wash their hands. They have all the skills, but they're refusing or they're reluctant. What can I do to increase their buy-in? And a lot of the time, um, what that really looks like is just creating some kind of contingency. So a first, then, or something that says once you do this thing that you may or may not really care about, like washing your hands, then you're going to be able to do the next thing, which is whatever it is. And ideally, these two things are thematically connected. So you want to have snack, of course, that sounds super fine. First, we have to wash our hands because washing your hands before snack is something that helps you whatever stay healthy stay clean those kinds of things Um, at the beginning you may have to have something that's not thematically connected like for example first wash your hands then get a sticker first wash your hands and then get a token and that's okay at first as your kiddos age you'll want to start to transition away from that and you know towards things that are connected sort of logically like what makes sense well I have to go to work so that I can get a paycheck so those kinds of contingencies exist in the real world and so therefore they, they sort of make sense when it comes to motivating action and motivating behavior. All right, the last one. Here we go. Number one, do facilitate conversation and social engagement with peers. Absolutely. It's super important for our kiddos to know that socialization is an option for them, that it can be really fun. It can be a really great way to connect, but don't force it in the absence of motivation. I can't tell you how many times I have seen kiddos who know all of the rules of conversation, so you know, whatever arbitrary rules they were taught. So, introduce yourself, ask them if they have a moment to chat, find a mutually agreeable subject, you know, listen attentively as they talk, ask a follow-up question, all of these sort of things that are arbitrary, in my opinion, rules of conversation. They know all the rules. They know what they have to do. They know that they're only allowed to, I don't know, ask three questions before a follow-up, whatever, whatever rules they know. The problem is, it doesn't make a lick of difference if you know the rules, if you have no intrinsic desire to connect. So, sure, focus on how you have a conversation because the mechanics can be a bit complicated, but don't do it if there's no motivation, number one. And if there is no motivation, then let's try to teach, let's try to contrive that motivation and figure out how we can create that motivation to connect, to have social connection. And it might require us to pivot in terms of what we. Think a conversation consists of, and it will most definitely require systematic shaping where we are slowly increasing our expectation for involvement and we are ensuring that motivation is high. And that in absence of motivation, we are just simply calling it and we are, you know, ending the activity. And if there isn't motivation, then we need to work a little harder to contrive it. I hope that's helpful for you. Again, those are my 10 essential habits operationalized or defined as respecting neurodiversity in science, understanding consent, and valuing mental wellness. These are strategies that I think are going to help guide you as a parent of a neurodivergent kiddo. And I think if you are an educator or a therapist and you have thoughts or you have questions or you have concerns, certainly find me on Instagram at MagMinds. If you're a parent, the same applies. Um, But I think for some therapists and educators, some of what I'm saying may go against what you have been taught. So I think there may be more room for dialogue there in terms of really understanding where this comes from, from a value perspective. Um, If you're a parent, I would love to connect as well. Thank you so much for sharing just a bit of time with me and really unpacking some things that I am extremely passionate about. And I look forward to connecting with all of you on this on another episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out, and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and share, share, share. Until next time, stay well, stay grounded, and keep letting science drive your habits while you let the pursuit of wellness and balance steer you in the right direction.